Hey everyone, it's Christy Wolf, and I'm here with Christy Thompson from Kelly Dry's Advertising Practice Group. And we wanted to take a few minutes today to talk specifically to our retail clients about the issues that they're experiencing as we shift from a brick and mortar type of sales model to e-commerce and related concerns about uh, refunds and pricing and what to think about as your business is in transition. You know, if you've been checking your email at all, you may have noticed everything is on sale. And so this leads us naturally into what I think is a, the first thing we should should be talking about, which is price and and um, prices going up and prices going down. And luckily, this happens to be an area of expertise for Christy. So let me hand it over to her and we'll talk a little bit about price. Thanks, Christy. And hi, everyone. So companies are certainly looking to, um, in many cases, lower prices to generate traffic to their websites move seasonal product or otherwise just get some buzz around a particular product. And so we are seeing, uh, as Christy mentioned, just a much greater frequency of items being on sale. And if you've been following our blog or other uh, information that we share with clients, you will know that this has been uh, a particular hotbed for class action plaintiffs uh, claiming that companies have perpetually offered a product on sale or have compared a current price to another price that doesn't have some sort of a reasonable basis. We've seen this for the last several years. So as companies are looking now to maybe drop those prices, we certainly encourage them to think about the timing for how long they intend to have the product on sale, when they most recently had it on sale, and some of the other sensitivities that these class action plaintiffs as well as regulators and some jurisdictions have been looking at, and then to keep a record of that so that you can track it and at least have a decent story to tell in the event that you get one of those calls or drafts compl draft complaints. So that talks about, uh, that covers pricing that's going down. But Christy, do you want to talk about when pricing might be going up? Sure. So we've probably heard a lot about price gouging or raising prices on certain items a little over a month ago. There were lots of stories in the news, especially the New York Times, about uh, these people who were hoarding, you know, hand sanitizer and toilet paper um, and, you know, then seeking to in many instances, sell it online at a vastly uh, increased price from what they from what they paid for it. And this is, as many of us who are are consumers as well, uh, we call this price gouging, right? And and it happens a lot of times when we find ourselves in a crisis and a certain type of product becomes in short supply, whether that's gasoline um, or toilet paper or what have you. Um, the prices go up and just like price advertising, generally, um, price gouging is also addressed in certain state statutes. And we've already seen several state attorneys general um, engage in enforcement relative to price gouging, sometimes on these kinds of items that are in short supply right now and particularly needed both by consumers and by medical professionals, such as hand sanitizer, um, but other kinds of items as well. And we should expect this to continue. So if your business is looking to figure out, okay, can we adjust prices, particularly upward, um, it's smart to be attuned to 
what kind of products are we talking about raising prices on? Are there any that are going to be sensitive in the current climate? And how much are we looking to raise them? Some state statutes have particular thresholds, such as 10%, um, when an item is in considered to be in short supply and in emergency circumstances, and other states don't have such unique, such specified um, thresholds. So you want to be sensitive to, you know, the product, um, the amount of increase, and and um, the timing of all of this that as it goes into effect, and also the place, right? Because it is state specific. Um, and I, one other thing too, in addition to the states that have broad enforcement, there were, I believe, 32. Or, or maybe 33, I can't recall, but attorneys general who sent a letter um, to a number of different uh, retailers on that online retail platforms, um, specifically addressing price advertising and, and price gouging. And we wrote about this uh, on our blog, Ad Law Access. So check that out uh, because it also prescribes certain steps that companies may wanna take to avoid being accused of, of price gouging later. So once you've sold the product, now yeah. the big question mark arises, right? How do you get it to the customer with unprecedented disruption to your own business and that historically things you have been able to control like access to your distribution facilities? And then on top of that, such disruption in connection with your suppliers and their access to products and then their ability to get them to use so that you can um, incorporate them into the product or otherwise just um, sell, uh, pass them through to the client. We're getting a lot of questions about this, including what do I tell consumers when I'm going to ship a product? And if I can't ship it within that time period I represented, what do I have to do? Those are all governed by the FTC's mail order rule. Um, and the under that rule, the FTC says that when you make a representation about when you are going to ship a product, you need to have a reasonable basis. And if you don't have a reasonable basis, you've got to ship it within 30 days. So you might ask yourself, what is a reasonable basis and how do I know if I've got one? The FTC advises that you have to look at anticipated demand and as you've seen, if you've been reading the, the press or just looking at your own sales data, things that weren't really moving three months ago are now all of a sudden the hottest items in town. And so being able to anticipate demand is particularly challenging now, but you got to give it your best shot and think about the current circumstances and what you know about your customer and whether you think demand is likely to increase or decrease in a way that might affect your ability to ship uh, in the time that you want to represent. Another one is supply. Uh, again, an area where we have seen dramatic changes in the last uh, few months in terms of what has been easy to get and what has not been easy to get. And as an entity selling online and looking to ship product, you've got to look closely at that and see what you've got in your own possession or what you might be able to readily get from your suppliers and then how much access you have to that and your ability to get that to consumers and your ability to get that to consumers is dictated by fulfillment systems. Another area where the FTC expects you to look when determining if you have a reasonable basis for a shipping representation 
So once you throw all of those into the mix, then you evaluate what do we think is a good faith estimate for when we can ship the product. And then you use that to make your shipping representation. Um, and then the second part of the FTC's rule is, okay, now that you've made the representation, what happens when we hit another wrinkle in this roller coaster ride that we're on and something happens so that you're not able to ship within the time period that you stated? Then the FTC has very specific rules about the notice you have to give to consumers as well as the authorization you have to get from them to agree to one of these delays. So it's a pretty um, intense process to evaluate this on the front end and then ensure that you communicate effectively with consumers on the back end. And so be sure to look at it very carefully. So let me ask you a question about that. So if I'm the retailer and I ship some products and because I can't control how the, the logistics providers are prioritizing other products, maybe medical products or something like that. Um, and my products aren't getting to their final destinations as quickly as they should. Is the mail order rule something that can be the basis for a private class action? Or is this something that, that retailers should be concerned about from a liability perspective? Or is it more of a consumer relations issue? Or is it both? It's a little bit of both. There legal considerations as well as customer relations considerations. The FTC enforces the mail order rule and they have done so aggressively over the years and just very recently announced a record setting $9.3 million settlement with a company called Fashion Nova to resolve allegations under the mail order rule. Uh, specifically, the FTC had alleged that the company had failed to proper, properly notify consumers when there was that delay in shipping. And then instead of giving them a refund as required under the rule, the FTC alleged that the company gave gift cards to compensate the consumers uh, for that unshipped merchandise. And Separate from the FTC, many states have just general unfair and deceptive acts and practices statutes, and many of those have a private cause of action, and, and a disgruntled consumer could individually or as a class attempt to bring an action under some of those statutes, just claiming that a representation like fast shipping or two-day shipping or another representation about shipping time was deceptive if the company didn't ship within that time period. So there's that threat as well in this space. And um, it's really just about having that kind of upfront reasonable basis. And then from the public relations perspective, you know, certainly the, the rule requires that follow-up communication and giving the customer options on how to move forward. But that has some PR benefits as well. And if you don't make that communication and, and do it effectively, certainly the public relations fallout can be significant. Yeah, the PR. Yep. Okay. Interesting. 
because every it seems like everyone has one of those banners up on their web pages about um, shipping times and and things may be delayed. Um, so helpful to take a look at that in context of the the mail order rule. Um, you know, the other one that we're hearing a lot about is is refunds, um, right? And a lot of large retailers have suspended their return policies um, to avoid contaminated products coming back into stores. And some retailers are even refusing to take returns on specific items that may have been purchased during the pandemic. Perhaps, you know, heaven forbid, you were one of those people who purchased 20,000 bottles of hand sanitizer or a ridiculous amount of toilet paper. And when this is all over, you're, you know, looking to return that. Some retailers are saying we are not going to take those things. Um, and there's a couple of considerations here. Uh, you know, return policies are something that, you know, consumer, consumers and regulators are sensitive to, right? Because it directly involves uh, consumer cash um, or on the other side of the transaction, retailers wanting to hold some cash. So it's important to make sure that consumers have proper notice of any kind of a change in policy you'll want to think about, you know, where that's posted. Is your, um, is it, is it clear and conspicuous on your website? Is it sufficient just to put it in, you know, the terms and conditions? Um, or should it be a little more prominent? Should, does it warrant an email to customers, something like that? Um, and what, what would be considered proper notice? Um, and if there's a change in terms of the, 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 period in which consumers can return products, right? If you would typically have a 30-day return policy, but because stores have been closed, if that's getting extended and how to go about getting uh, getting uh, refunds for any of those kinds of products is, is also another consideration. Similar to, um, similar to shipping, you also want to have a customer service plan in place and make sure the, the communications folks are up to speed on any changes because they're going to be the ones who are dealing with customer service complaints. Um, if you're like me uh, and a lot of people are in the same boat, yeah, maybe you had a flight canceled over what, what was supposed to be your spring break and uh, we're expecting to get a credit for that um, and haven't received it yet. Well, um, this is interesting. The, the, um, airline industry, apparently a lot of the major carriers have been um, offering uh, credits rather than refunds. Sorry, I was expecting a refund, um, but I should be getting a credit um, from the airline because um, they canceled the flight, but instead of giving me the cash, they want to just hold it and give me a credit um, to, to use on a future flight. And this is something that has prompted letters from various members of Congress, um, and then some follow-up, of course, because the airlines, uh, you know, of course, accepted some some bailout money under the CARES Act. It's, it's really too early to tell how all of this is going to play out as companies of lots of different kinds look to change their refund policies. And consumers, you know, figure that out and, and either are okay with it and they make certain adjustments or they they file complaints and it's something that companies will definitely want to manage both in terms of, of a legal standpoint and also a public relations standpoint to make sure that it, that it doesn't boil over. Um, and the same is probably true. I think from, you know, going from a brick and mortar mentality to how do we focus more on the e-commerce side of our business, you know, and product reviews and, 
those kinds of things that we think of um, in terms of, of e-commerce and, and what consumers find important and, and what regulators find important, right? Yeah, exactly. And as e-commerce starts to blend with brick and mortar, because as we are seeing now, many of the products that consumers want to buy via website are actually in a store somewhere and companies are getting creative in the way that they are giving access to those products to get consumers um, options like um, ship to store uh, so that the consumer can still uh, go to the store to uh, pick up the product. And those are being, the, the requirements around those are being driven at an incredibly granular um, perspective so that you have different jurisdictions developing different rules around what is deemed an essential business and one that can stay open versus one that is not essential, but might still be able to have a kind of drive-through option for its customers so that they can uh, come and pick up product that they have um, purchased somewhere else, like via the website. You probably saw the press uh, a few weeks ago about Hobby Lobby, which took the position that because they were selling some PPE that they were deemed um, essential businesses and um, under the definitions of essential businesses in several local jurisdictions, the local law enforcement took a different perspective from Hobby Lobby because they had applied this kind of national um, policy to keep the doors open and local law enforcement went in and literally shut them down in several states um, because of the way that that particular state had looked at what would be an essential business. So it, it gets very granular and trying to come up with a national approach on that can be challenging. We have, however, seen several retailers that have set up these drive-through lanes where customers um, order online and then either have it shipped to the store or um, through some other mechanism that the website has set up, um, the product is available at the store and customers go to the store to pick it up. We haven't seen um, too much enforcement on that uh, with that kind of a setup as long as the rules for social distancing and minimal customer interaction have been followed. Um, another issue we're seeing come up with this transition to e-commerce, particularly where in the traditional retail space, companies had really relied so heavily on their brick and mortar presence and, and less on the website um, is the increased use of customer reviews. And we were already seeing that as a trend for our kind of traditional brick and mortar retail clients. But now as this push to the, the website has increased, that push to generate consumer reviews has also increased. And a few things to keep in mind, because it's always helpful as, as we as consumers know when you're um, shopping for something to, to see what other people think about it. But if you are the website that is hosting those reviews, um, two things to, to really keep in mind. One is that the 
if the review was provided in connection with a campaign or something else that you as the retailer may have done to incentivize posting of that review, um, in most circumstances, the person posting the review would need to disclose that they were incentivized. And um, those reviews can come in all shapes and sizes with all different kinds of people posting them. But if, if there was some sort of incentive provided, odds are pretty good that the incentive needs to be disclosed. And um, if you don't have some sort of automatic way to do that through the review process, then you need to instruct the influencers or other folks who are posting the reviews that it's their job to ensure that they do it. And then we would recommend that you audit those reviews uh, to, to make sure that there is some sort of disclosure happening. The other thing to keep in mind with reviews is that under the Consumer Review Fairness Act, there are some limitations on what you can do about a negative review, uh, because we're also seeing, particularly right now, um, a heightened sensitivity to negative reviews, and the knee-jerk reaction is to try to get rid of it or minimize it in some way. And um, under this Consumer Review Fairness Act, as I said, there are a lot of restrictions on your ability to do that. So as much as someone might want to um, push the delete button or the do some other uh, thing like that to just make it go away, I would exercise great caution because the exceptions uh, that would allow that under the statute are pretty limited and um, require pretty careful consideration. So Christy, as stores are now uh, opening up or thinking about opening up in certain jurisdictions and this brick and mortar uh, element will come back to life in some form, um, although there's all sorts of speculation about to what degree and, and certainly now we're just watching which which states are even talking about going back to some sort of opening up. Um, what what should customers, I mean, uh, what should retailers be thinking about as they're trying to ensure the health of their workers and employees, uh, as well as other customers, as customers coming in the store might be running a fever or might have other yeah. COVID-19. Right. Right. Shopping. When can we all get back to, to shopping and um, doing so in an actual store? Um, so this is a little bit of a shift from some of the other questions we've answered, but I think it's an interesting one and one that we're going to hear and, and see a lot more about. We've gotten some questions from uh, different kinds of clients, really different industries around the use of uh, thermographic systems, right? So these, these cameras that can um, you know, essentially detect temperature in relation to, you know, what is around you um, and provide a, like a heat based image of um, a person. And essentially the, the, the obvious use being to detect whether or not someone is a fever, has a fever rather. Uh, you may have seen last week Reuters reported that Amazon has installed these cameras in their warehouses and they're going to be using them uh, to hopefully identify employees who, who may have fevers. I'm sure lots of other companies, retailers, non-retailers, airports, what have you, are going to start using this same kind of technology. And it raises a ton of interesting questions. Um, 
So let us flag just a couple of them. Um, you know, the first of all is how are these products regulated? Um, and the FDA answered that for us last Friday, actually, um, by releasing some guidance. And it essentially says, you know, if it is intended to be used to take a person's temperature, even if it's not in a, a healthcare setting, um, that may cause this, this particular system to be considered a medical device. And as a medical device, it of course would need to meet under typical circumstances, certain medical device regulatory provisions, right? Such as FDA gets to review it before it hits the market, you have to register as a medical device manufacturer and list it, and you have to meet specific quality requirements, right? Well, given the situation that we're all in and the potential value of these cameras, um, FDA is relaxing some of these regulations to such that these cameras can be used and, and distributed um, without undergoing pre-market review you know, manufacturer registration and device listing and the quality provisions, but they still have to meet specific um, quality standards and those are specified in the guidance. Um, and they still have unique labeling and performance requirements um, to make sure that uh, people understand what the technology is and what it's not. And, and the most important one there, I think, is that even if someone is identified as being you know, a potential for fever, this needs to be confirmed with a clinical thermometer, right? So a device that is cleared by the FDA. Um, it's not It's not as though going through and you get a, a heat warning um, and suddenly it's confirmed that you have a fever. It has to be confirmed with a clinical thermometer under this guidance. Um, and I think that's important because I think we're going to see a lot of these pop up, whether it is to identify, you know, the general public or to identify employees who may have fever. Um, as, as companies and venues seek to reopen, this is technology that they're gonna be looking into and they should know that this is how it's viewed by regulators um, with respect to you know, marketing of this product. And there are other considerations too. And I, I think that we'll be hearing more about this in the coming days too, relating to empl uh, employee privacy um, and what gets you know, captured and shared um, and the same with consumer privacy, uh, as far as if you're going into a large venue like an airport, are they capturing your image? Are they saving it? Are they doing anything else with it? And so definitely if your company is thinking about this, you want to be thinking about, you know, first of all, is the technology going to meet these standards? I actually posted about this on our FDA blog, which is fooddruglaw.com. Um, and then also, um, you know, employee privacy and consumer privacy related disclosures around capturing of information um, and then storing it and sharing it and, you know, what all is being done because it really raises a lot of very interesting issues. So I think that's all we have for today for our retailer specific questions. Um, but definitely check out our Kelly Dry COVID-19 resource response page at kellydry.com, K-E-L-L-E-Y-D-R-Y-E.com. Um, and in particular, there is an, a uh, webinar coming up called Getting Back to Work, and it's offered by our Labor and Employment Group. It'll be on April 24th, but it's, it will be posted on the website shortly thereafter if you happen to uh, miss the live version. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of great information about managing employees 
as we start to think about reopening the economy. Also, please check out our AdLaw Access blog at adlawaccess.com. Thanks very much.